0: Welcome to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, we will preview the Masters with golf writer Adam Stanley, as well as a look back on the life and legacy of Howie Meeker with John Shannon. That's coming up on the podcast. It is a very unusual year, which means the Masters, a staple of spring, begins Thursday in Augusta, Georgia. Moved because, of course, the pandemic. So there are no fans. Conditions will be different. The tradition unlike any other, with a tournament unlike any Masters tournament we've seen in the past. But it is a major. A lot of people, including myself, very much looking forward to what's going to happen. So to help preview the action, I'm joined by Canadian golf writer Adam Stanley. Adam, are you ready for a green jacket to be awarded in mid November?
1: This is definitely one of the the weirder things to happen this year in a in a year of, of weird things. And I think specifically about, you know, the Masters tournament and, and the opportunity to have it. Happen, you know. Any of the guys who I've talked to to this point have all said the same thing to me. They're just happy that the Masters is going on at, at all. Period. So uh, I think it's it's incredibly strange that we've got a November Masters. You know, it's it's pretty much the holiday season. It's Thanksgiving in the U.S. is right around the corner. We've already had our Thanksgiving, of course, and and you know a lot of these places. Uh, come this weekend after Remembrance Day, are going to have their Christmas decorations up if not already. So, um, you know the 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 Masters is going to be an interesting thing to to happen with the with a Christmas backdrop. But uh, you know it's uh, it's exciting to see that the tournament itself is actually going on, and you know the field is is incredibly stout, and you know the golf course from everything I've seen on social media up to this point uh, is looking absolutely spectacular as well.
0: So, because it is in November. We lose daylight for sure, which could impact how long these rounds go. How different will the conditions be this year to compare to a normal Masters?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question. I think that's something that everyone's going to be battling with. So for the first time, I think ever, they're going to have a morning wave and an afternoon wave of golfers, and the golfers are going to be playing off the first and the 10th tee. So usually at the Masters, uh, you know, guys just go off of the first tee uh, and they start at Seven fifteen in the morning or whatever it is. And, and they run them all the way till two fifteen in the afternoon, one after the other. But uh, this time they're going to do something a little bit different to try to get all the guys through during a day, uh, which is going to be incredibly fascinating for the guys to tee off on number 10, you know, first thing in the morning when it's going to be cold, 10, 11, 12, 13 are are some of the hardest holes on the golf course. So, you know, imagine if it's your first masters and and you got to tee off on 10 and then play the incredibly difficult 11 and then the incredibly difficult and tricky 12, you could be way over par and and way early. So that's definitely something to take, uh, keep an eye on Uh, the the golf course itself. I mean, the weather uh, forecast, the temperatures are looking pretty comparable this week as they would be in April. It's going to be a little bit colder longer in the mornings, but it's going to warm up to a temperature that's pretty similar to April. Uh, There is a lot of rain that is expected to be in the forecast and the golf course itself, you know, usually in April, it's the end of Augusta national season. But here in November, uh, it's the beginning. The grass was was just planted, you know, call it five, six weeks ago. Uh, The grass is very chewy. It's it's going to perform and play a little bit different than kind of that, that dry and ripping grass that we're used to. Uh, in April. So a lot of learnings, even for guys who have played the Masters uh, for a number of years in the past.
0: And the Masters, we've also learned, is doing away with the uh, 10-shot rule, which is if you're within 10 shots, the lead after Friday, you're on the weekend. Now they're going to a, 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 t- a low 50 in ties rule. Do you think this is going to have a big impact?
1: I, you know, it's it's a little bit too early to tell. I mean, I think, you know, guys who have been that far out of the lead it's really not impacting the top of the leaderboard by the time we get to Saturday and Sunday, the guys who are 10 shots within, it's more of a, more of a pride thing. And, and maybe you can go a little bit lower and, and, and be in the conversation for uh, Sunday's finale. But I, I don't think that uh, it, it's something that the guys are all of a sudden talking about in the locker room saying, Hey, did you hear this? they probably just, you know, trying to go out there and, and shoot shoot the lowest score possible and, um, you know, this top 50 in ties is pretty similar to what it is in the normal week on the PGA tour when I believe it's top 60 or top 65 in ties or something like that. So, um, yeah, I don't think that this is as big of an impact on the guys as, as maybe it seems to be because it's like, oh, there's something new with the masters. Um, but it is obviously going to, you know, reduce the number of, you would assume notable names that find the weekend.
0: One last logistical question. This is the first time the Masters Sunday final round is going to go up against the National Football League, and CBS has rights to both. I already looked ahead to the schedule. There are a ton of 3.25 p.m. Central time starts, way more than normal in the NFL. Are they going to try to have the final round of the Masters done by 4.30 Eastern?
1: Yes, they are. The The Masters t- television coverage on Sunday runs only until 3 p.m., so uh, they did this with, uh, you know, NFL football in mind, uh, with college football in mind, even on on the Saturday. They're going to have uh, ESPN game day uh, on site at Augusta National on Saturday morning, uh, leading into the coverage. And then immediately after the coverage is done, I think at four, uh, it'll go into one of the big college football matchups. And then on Sunday, they're just going to start the boys off uh, early 10 a.m. Uh, you know, I think the leaders will be off at 11 Things will be wrapped up by three just in time for, uh, for a little football on Sunday on Sunday afternoon. So it's a, it's a nice time for, for all sports fans to get acquainted with their, uh, or perhaps reacquainted with their couches.
0: Well, and a reminder too that last year's final round started really early because of uh, inclement weather coming into Georgia. So uh, Golf Masters viewers will remember that from last year and how it was actually kind of neat to get it done early.
1: It, it absolutely was, and I can tell you, as a uh, as a journalist, it was nice to have things done, you know, around four o'clock, and and then you uh, you get to writing your story, and you're done by six, with the sun's still out, versus you know things being done by seven thirty, and you're not done till nine. So uh, definitely uh, two years in a row of kind of an interesting way to finish the Masters, but uh, at least we you know have a Masters to watch, and you know it's that tradition unlike any other, and and there isn't you know a tournament in the sport that kind of gives you the same feeling of anticipation and excitement like the Masters, even though it's uh, it's here in November. And we've already had a bunch of majors happen already this year, but uh, there's nothing quite like the Masters.
0: So Tiger Woods is our defending champion. He was playing pretty good golf last year and leading into the Masters, but 2020 has been really bad for Tiger. Does he have a shot of winning again?
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in a word, uh, Tiger Woods has played poor poorly poor golf this uh this year um made a couple cuts missed missed the cut at the u.s open the last major a, a few weeks ago um you know whether that be for injuries or um you know his body just getting older or his competition getting better all those are factors um but i think we have to think about the historical impact of tiger woods and augusta national i mean this is the guy who in 2010, you know, after his life was totally upended after his big scandal in 2009, I mean, he came to Augusta the next year in 2010, and he finished tied for fourth. Like, if you think, you know, your life is on display and you can can still come to this, this golf course, it's a bit of a sanctuary for you. It's a bit of a, you know, just kind of a magic kingdom. Um, I think that you can't really count him out. He wasn't really playing all that well, leading into last year either um, you know there was there was some better results certainly um, in 2018 leading into 2019 but there were still kind of the same number of way more questions than answers is kind of what I'm getting at with respect to Tiger Woods in 2019 so uh, it, he's another year older this year but uh, I, I don't think that you can really count out Tiger Woods
0: at Augusta National. The fact that there won't be people roaring for him on every hole that that's a big disadvantage for him, isn't it?
1: It it is. And and it's a disadvantage for uh, the guys who have played a number of masters, Tiger Woods included. I mean, guys arrive on site at Augusta national and they're used to, you know, they're used to this, they're used to this tunnel of patrons uh, on every hole. They're used to the patrons kind of almost being this living and breathing entity of the golf course, because there's this buzz and this unmistakable vibe that you get while playing the golf course and just being on the golf course. And and for guys who have, you know, played this tournament a number of years, they've just gotten used to this routine of of people everywhere. And now you're looking down a fairway and there's nobody and and you can see the trouble. I think the trouble is more pronounced. And and for somebody like Tiger or for somebody like, um, you know, any of the past champions or, or world number one, Dustin Johnson, uh, you know, any of these guys are, are used to, you know, crowds kind of carrying them forward. And, and, you know, you think about Augusta specifically, you know, you know, on 11, 12, 13 at amen corner, when something's happened, it, it reverberates throughout the entire golf course. And with none of that this year, I think it's going to be a, it's going to be a big impact on all the guys.
0: Adam Bryson DeChambeau the most recent major champion claimed the US Open title with his big hitting bomb and gouge style now he traditionally hasn't fared all that well at the Masters though so do you think things could be different this time around?
1: Yeah and that's, I think that's the biggest question uh for this year is is, is Bryson DeChambeau going to dismantle Augusta National and, and based on some of the the little snippets of uh information we've got from social media so far it looks to be that way exactly. And I mean, like you said, he's a guy who put on 40 pounds. He said he was going to do this. He said he was going to try to change the game with his body uh, and with his golf clubs, you know, with the science of the human body and the science of the golf equipment. And he's starting to do that. And I think he still has to make putts. That's probably the only Achilles heel that he's had uh, at the Masters since he's turned professional is that statistically, he's been one of the absolute worst putters at Augusta uh, since he turned pro so he can bomb it around all he wants but he still needs to have a much tighter short game than what he's shown up to this point point. and i think the the interesting thing for him with this mad scientist mind of his is that uh, books that are helpful for green reading these green reading maps for lack of a better descriptor they're not actually allowed at the masters and and bryson really relies on his week in week out on the PGA tour. So without having that crutch, I I think he's, he's really struggled in kind of seeing the greens. He can't make putting a mathematical formula. It has to be a lot more of a feel thing. And that's where he struggled. So, yeah, I absolutely agree that Bryson DeCham is going to bomb his way around the golf course, and it's going to cause some conversations amongst the, the green jackets about what we're actually doing with this layout. But I don't think that he's proven that he, uh, that he's a world-class putter at Augusta national quite yet.
0: How about Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka, two guys that uh, had different summers, but Koepka is always a factor at majors that he plays in. And Johnson obviously won the FedEx cup. Are they f- going to be factors this week?
1: Yeah. I mean, DJ, uh, almost won last week and, and same with Brooks Kepka and, you know, Dustin Johnson's world number one for a reason, wins the FedEx cup for a reason. It's a season long race. So he's had arguably the most steady, uh, 12 to 16 months out of anybody, uh, in, uh, in professional golf. So I absolutely think that DJ has got a chance. Uh, he finished, you know, in the top three, I think it was last year. So this golf course is certainly suited for him. Brooks Kepka, same thing. You know, he was in the top three last year in, in one of those second to last pairings he may even have finished runner up Brooks Kepka did. So, you know, he's, he and Dustin have played very similar games. And I think that those games are uh, incredibly lending themselves to success at Augusta National. So, uh, the question mark for Brooks is injury. Can he recover? Is he recovered from his injury that basically shelled him for, you know, a good chunk of 2020 uh, and, and also caused him to miss one of the last majors as well. So Augusta National is not an easy walk. he will have to kind of see how he's feeling and can make his way around that golf course. Uh, but he's definitely, you know, sorted and settled as, as a contender. Uh, DJ had COVID-19. He just got back last week. Um, but he has uh, already proven that he's pretty much back to 100%. So I like both those guys this week purely because their games uh, are really suited for this golf course.
0: Yeah, those two, along with Xander Shoffley finished one shot back of Tiger in a tie for second last year. All right, Canadians. We're sending four Canadians to the Masters. Do any of them have a shot?
1: <laughs> Out of all of them, I would say Corey Connors probably has the best shot. Um, you know, he is one of the best ball strikers on the planet you look at the numbers he was first in greens of regulation on the pga tour last year so you know tina green he's probably got the best built game for the masters his putting has been statistically terrible uh he will be the first to admit that he told me that that's really the make or break thing for him but he also told me that he's not intimidated by the golf course which i think is a uh, is an important thing so out of all the guys i think corey has got the best shot adam hadwin is playing his third masters this year same with Corey. um nick taylor is playing his first masters so it's a it's a lot to learn for somebody like nick um but good for him for having the opportunity to go out and do this Uh, and then of course there's mike weir 2003 masters champion mike's having a heck of a season on the champions tour the 50 and over circuit but turn 50 in May has three top tens and just nine tournaments. So, uh, you know, nice to see Mike with some momentum going into the masters. Uh, but I mean, he's a guy who is averaging probably, uh, 20 to 30 yards, uh, less than some of the top drivers in the game. And, and that's going to be a real difference maker. So you want to see all the Canadian guys do well, and, and they all have, uh, kind of some, some momentum behind each and every one of them for differing reasons. Uh, but out of all the guys, I think Corey's got the best shot to, uh, to contend this
0: week. So Sergio Garcia was – he made a lot of people happy in 2017 when he finally got his first major. A lot of people very happy for him to get off the schneid. He's not going to be here this year, tested positive for COVID. And just I want to get your thoughts on the fact – and this blew me away. This will be the first major that he won't be taking part of since the 99 U.S. Open. That's incredible.
1: (laughs) He was, uh, you know, he was 19 or however old he was. It was the last time that he missed a, uh, a major. 1999 seems like, you know, half a lifetime ago. And it, and it really was. I mean, that's, geez, that's 21 years ago. So, you know, you think about uh, all that has happened since then, the opportunities that Sergio Garcia has had, and, and to finally take it across the finish line uh, at the Masters a couple of years ago was, uh, you know, was, was was really good for, you know, Sergio has rubbed some people the wrong way. Um, in his career. But at the end of the day, it's a guy who has you know, missed out on, on the big one a lot because of you know personal struggles or mental beliefs or anything like that. Uh, and it's, it's always kind of fulfilling and rewarding. And it feels, you know, it feels exciting when, when somebody like that can win a major. So yeah, no, no Masters Sergio 2017 champion this year because of COVID. Um, first, first missed major in, in two decades, but uh, I'm sure he'll be back next year. Excited to get after it.
0: All right, Adam, putting you on the spot. Last question, who's going to win?
1: Rory McIlroy is, uh, is going to win this week. And, you know, I say that because he is trying for the Grand Slam. And I don't think that that storyline has really been talked about or, or given its due uh, up to this point in, in the week and, and kind of in the lead-up. So I think the fact that his, you know, magical storyline isn't something that's on the top of people's mind. And at the end of the year, he's a father now. He's already said he's going to take the next three and a half months off. I think he's really looking at this as kind of a you know an exclamation point on an otherwise disappointing season. So there's really not the, the big hype train that's uh, pulling into the station for Rory McIlroy, and I actually think that that's going to be way more beneficial for him uh, mentally. He's got all the tools to win at this golf course, and, and I think he, he does it this year.
0: Well, I'll be happy to tune in and watch it, Adam. I'm sure you will be enjoying it too. Thanks for your time tonight, and enjoy the golf. <laughs> Thanks so much. This was fun. Uh, We lost uh, some legends over the weekend earlier in the show, talked about Alex Trebek, and we also found out that Howie Meeker had passed away at the age of 97, a life very fully lived, spent time as an NHL player, spent time as a member of Parliament, ran hockey camps, and was well known as well for his broadcasting work. And to talk about all this, we are joined by veteran sportscaster John Shannon. John, thanks for joining us tonight.
2: Christian, how are you?
0: I am doing well. What did Howie Meeker mean to you?
2: Well, I was really lucky. I, I mean, obviously, I watched Howie uh, when he began his career on Hockey Night in Canada, and then in particular uh, in the 1972 Summit Series, where, where, in my opinion, he he really made it to the national stage as the uh, intermission analyst on the on all eight games on CBC and CTV and it was from there that he really uh, uh, jumped uh, in <clears throat> in the eyes of fans and in, and in the hockey in Canada world and when I joined the show in 1977 uh, Howie was a big part of the show and and uh, I got to work for uh, for nine seasons with Howie, uh, me as the producer and Howie as one of our announcers. And Howie was a consummate professional. He was a great teammate. Uh, He loved hockey. He loved television. He loved people. uh, And he was a a really, really solid person to be around on a weekly basis.
0: Now, how did he kind of change the game of hockey analysis with the Telestrator?
2: Well, uh, even before the Telestrator, uh, I think Howie changed the way Hockey analysis, and and in many ways, hockey broadcasting was. Um, Long before Howie, uh, hockey announcers were pretty straight-laced. You know, they were shirt and ties, look straight ahead, um, rather uh, simple commentary. Uh, But when Howie came on board, uh, there was a, a, a level of subjectivity to his analysis and a level of enthusiasm to his analysis. Uh, that you could see he was emotionally involved, and he was not afraid to criticize. Uh, and that was something that, uh, at the NHL level, no one had ever done before. And when when the fans started to react positively to it, like, like he was so entertaining uh, that he pointed out things that were right or pointed out things that were wrong in the game, that people really started to follow it. And he, he made an impact, um, you know there there was a time when uh, on hockey night all you did at the intermission was go get a beer or you know or walk the dog for 15 minutes and what howie did was it, it he made it 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 really really impossible to miss the first intermission because you never knew what he would say he, and and what we're talking about here's we're talking you know 15 years started in 68 we're talking basically 15 years before Don Cherry showed up. Uh, Howie was the first guy that really colored outside the lines on Hockey Night in Canada, and and people really took to it.
0: And this comes at a time when, you know, hockey, they're adding teams, television is taking off, color TV, and then you've got the incredible offense of the 80s, and it was and from what I'm looking at here, a perfect blend for, for Meeker to really become a household name.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, he was a big part of, uh, you know, Jets uh, 1.0 uh, starting in 79 when, when Winnipeg was on Hockey Night, how he was usually on the show. He was a big part of the Oilers' first two Stanley Cups. And then the Flames Stanley, uh, Stanley Cup final in 1986, the one that Montreal won. Um, before he left the show he was he was uh absolutely totally entertaining he was he educated uh he made the game fun and uh and then you combine that with what he did uh in the minor hockey world with his famous Howie meeker hockey schools uh he did uh, He did so many things to try to promote the game, make the game better. Uh, and make the game more watchable, even for people who never had played the game. you know we we often forget Christian is that uh, it, you know not everybody in our country played hockey. you know i We used to laugh in the office that uh, on a good Saturday night, if we had two million people watching Hockey night in Canada, what were the other twenty eight million people doing um, and 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 how we made the game much more palpable for people who didn't necessarily consider themselves experts for, for the game. So he made it simple, he made it effective, and he made it fun.
0: And as a player, he was one of just 46 to ever score five goals in a game. So he's got that beside his name, too. A well, nice scored five trivia. goals
2: in a game, has his name on the Stanley Cup four times with the Maple Leafs. Uh, and anybody of a, a vintage a little older than me, uh, the famous goal uh, scored by Bill Barilko in 1951, uh, the one that the tragically Hip made the song about. Um, Howie Meeker passed the puck to Barilko to score. Uh, he was he was a very good hockey player. Was he a superstar? No, but he was he was a yeoman. He did he did a ton of stuff for the Maple Leafs in that period of time. And very quickly after he retired, became the coach of the Maple Leafs. It uh, didn't last very long because he got into a fist fight with the owner uh but uh, he was uh he was an electric personality and one of the, actually one of the amazing things uh, christian about, about what what how he did is how he actually came back to television he didn't go right from being a coach in the n h l or the a h l and go into television like many did uh he he was he was away from the game living in newfoundland owning a sporting goods store and and doing some Sports commentary in Newfoundland. He was away from the NHL for about six years uh, in the mid 60s before Ralph Mellenby, my boat boss, found him uh, and gave him an opportunity
0: to work on a Saturday night in Montreal. And he was also a member of parliament while he was playing for the Leafs.
2: Yeah, we used to, you know, I'm a political junkie and, and we would spend many a night talking about politics and talking about life and and really what happened was um uh, Con Smythe major Smythe who owned the Maple Leafs at the time went to Howie and said listen I think you would be a great member of parliament I want you to run uh and and Smythe was a big uh, wheeler dealer within the conservative party of Canada at the time and they placed Howie in a uh, in a riding that uh, that Howie won uh and he uh he made $4000 a year uh, as a member of Parliament, sometimes got practice off, wouldn't get games off, but sometimes got practice off if, if the House was sitting in Ottawa during the hockey season.
0: That would never happen today.
2: Uh, I think not. Uh, but, I mean, we're talking about uh, his player's salary might have been $10,000 and his MP's salary would have, was 4000
0: That's true. It was a little different in 1951.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yes, to say the least.
0: So did you stay in touch with Howie after you uh, no longer worked together in the hockey world?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, Howie and I, we we were lifelong friends. Uh, uh, I, we used to have a great time. In fact, I uh, in one of my uh, other lives, I, I ran a, a TV channel here in southern Ontario uh, called Leafs TV. That was a regional channel with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And uh, I contracted I, – I wanted to reinvent the Howie Weaker Hockey School on television – as a half-hour show with Howie showing us skills and drills. Uh, And we worked on it for about 18 months before we realized that Howie's philosophy and style of coaching and and teaching uh, just didn't work in the the 21st century.
0: And I guess that's just from your perspective – when did you realize that it wasn't going to work and was part of that? You know, I, I really like this guy, but I, I got to just say no thanks. This isn't going to happen.
2: No, it was it, 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 uh, The reality was that it, that uh, how how he believed in skill over, you know, over uh, you know the the physical play, but it was just it, it it just didn't work. It didn't translate to kids of another generation. It was different when it was fifteen minutes on film. Uh, he was still very he listen. Was, he was still entertaining. You could you could learn a few things from him, but it, at, at that at that point and uh, that he was he was in his late seventies at the time, and it it just didn't it did, didn't translate. But he and I we as I said we we were we were great friends and and you know communicated via text probably more than any anything in the last decade. But uh, I view Howie as a, a lifelong friend and a mentor, and he taught me a great deal, and I'd like to think I helped him too.
0: Well, John, I appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing some memories of Howie tonight. Thanks for this. Have a great night, Christian. Tune in to the CGOB Sports Show weeknights from 7 to 9 with me, Christian O'Mell, or you can download the podcast on iTunes. It's actually on iTunes now. Wow. If you got an Android, then I dig you're out of luck, but Apple products, you're good. So listen to the podcast. Please subscribe. You can rate it. What's the worst that could happen?